Welcome. The Leadership Lesson Podcast inspires leadership growth in everyone. We have enthralling conversations with top leaders in order to provide you with life-changing lessons. My name is Caleb Nichols. I'm a speaker, a pastor, and a family man. My hope is to inspire spiritual depth and leadership growth in you. I love to sit down with leaders from a variety of fields, hear their personal stories and leadership experiences. This creates the podcast. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the Leadership Lessons podcast. Today we have uh, Greg Sheridan with us, which uh, is very, very exciting. Uh, blessed to have Greg along. He is uh, Australia's most recognisable journalist, I would like to say. He's an author, uh, written a bunch of books and a, a cultural commentator. Greg has been the foreign editor of The Australian, if you haven't heard of him before. Uh, he's been there since 1992 and uh, he has the privilege of uh, interviewing prime ministers and presidents across the globe. So, but today we're going to uh, invite Greg on and he's going to talk to us about his latest book called Christians, the urgent case for Jesus in our world. And uh, very excited to dive into my favorite topic. And I'm sure Greg's as well uh, about Jesus Christ. So it's great to have you with us, Greg, on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks a lot, Caleb. Uh, terrific to be with you, indeed. Fantastic. So, tell us uh, a little bit about the book, mate. What was your? What's really your thesis? What's the point that you're trying to make with this fantastic new book? Well, Caleb, I'm thrilled that you like the book. Um, so, this is my second book about Christianity, um, uh, or about about Jesus, I suppose. Uh, the first was called "God Is Good for You." It came out about three years ago, and it, it dealt in part with uh, the rational case for belief in God, uh, why Christians shouldn't be bluffed out of their belief by the idea that there was something a bit weird about believing in God or something irrational. And uh, somebody said to me afterwards, look, that's not a bad effort, uh, Greg, on that, but you say that Jesus Christ is the centre of the Christian faith, but where is Jesus? Where is the living Jesus in your book? And of course, you know, if someone is an addicted book writer. Uh, it's a bit like being a heroin addict, you know, it's hard to start, but but it's impossible to stop. And uh, you don't need much provocation. So I really spent a couple of years searching for Jesus in the New Testament. And I read the New Testament as a, um, predominantly as a journalist. So, you know, there's no confusion about this. I, I believe the New Testament to be true. So I, I come at it as a journalist, believing that it's true, but reading it for uh, narrative, incident, sources, um, and also, uh, like a lot of Christians, I think I, I heard uh, Bible verses at church and meditated on them and so on, but I hadn't, in my adult life, I'm ashamed to say, or indeed in my pre-adult life, I hadn't read books of the, of the New Testament, a whole book at a time, reading it properly as the way that you would read. So um, uh, I found that... Um, the, the New Testament is terrifically accessible. Uh, there's no, Christians and others are intimidated by the Bible. They don't need to be. And of course, the person, the personality of Jesus is absolutely compelling. And then the, um, all the other, the, all the other early disciples who are sketched, Peter and Paul and Mary, terrifically human, very vivid figures, John. And then, so that's the first half of the book, if you like. And also an argument that the New Testament is, is reliable as history. And then the second half of the book is looking at uh, Jesus' followers today and how uh, how the love of Christ inspires people to take really big life decisions and make a terrific yes. contribution. 
That's fantastic. And how is reading it as a journalist, do you think, different to how most people might read the Bible? Like, what does the journalist brain look for as it reads any document, especially an ancient document? Well, um, you know, there have been lawyers who've read the Gospels as lawyers and assessed the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and so on. And I think it's not a bad thing to bring your professional skill to bear, such as it is, on the Gospel. Now, I'm not pretending that there's some absolute revolutionary bit of scholarship in my book, nothing like that. But uh, so all the Gospels are magnificent, but the Gospel that particularly appeared to me, appealed to me is the Gospel of Luke. It's the warmest Gospel. It has the, the most women in it. Uh, but also it's very much a journalist's book. Luke, uh, so ancient tradition has it, was a physician, but Luke really is the Bob Woodward of the early Jesus movement, you know, he and he tells you this at the start of the gospel. He says, "Okay, I'm really." Uh, he doesn't use this word, but he says, "Really, I'm I'm a journalist here. I've interviewed everybody. I've read all the accounts. I've done all the research, and here is the definitive story of of Jesus." And so, one thing you get as a journalist is a terrific sense of fellow feeling with Luke, uh, uh, writing all the, and ordering the the material. The second thing is you say, well, who resources? Now, mm-hmm. there's 2,000 years of biblical scholarship on this. Uh, most biblical scholarship, I think, is kind of neither here nor there. Or Archaeology and history are very interesting, and they confirm the historicity of the New Testament. But as a journalist, yeah. you say, well, who, where would Luke have got this material? So I believe, the, like most Christians, I believe that the Gospels were divinely inspired. But I don't think they floated down from heaven in, in pre you know, pre-packaged form, uh, the evangelists had to write them and and uh, had to uh, talk to other people. So Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus, but Luke interviewed the eyewitnesses. And it seems to me, given all the terrific material that Luke has about the Annunciation to Mary and the birth of Jesus and so on and Mary's pregnancy, uh, obviously one of his sources was Mary. And, of course, that puts Mary in a slightly different light too then because you think, well, Mary has shaped the interpretation of Jesus through shaping Luke's uh, interpretation, at least in the first part of uh, first part of his gospel. And then the, the final reflection I'd make of reading it all as a journalist is you get a terrific sense of the personalities in the gospel. Um, yeah. So Christians naturally, and this is a good thing, tend to look verse by verse and look for theological meaning and so on. But, um, and that's great. That's a terrific way to read the gospel. I, you know, opponents of the gospel tend to have their certain set bits that they don't like and they fling those out of context. But actually to read the read a, a book at a time, you get uh, a terrific sense of the humanity of the people involved. Like they're lovely mm-hmm. It's terrific that Paul and Peter have a great argument that uh, Peter nonetheless has a passage where he says, yeah, I know Paul's a bit difficult, but you just gotta, <laughs> just got to put up with him. You know, Paul is this wonderfully irascible, uh, magnificent, but very human and in his own terms, very flawed personality. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't normally come up in church in the Gospels, which is, which is wonderful, very, very human stuff. Like how much yeah. time they have been fundraising you know they didn't live by diaphanous vision how many arguments they had with each other uh how many things they had to sort out um and uh again that speaks to the authenticity of the documents because if you're making them up 200 years later 
to to uh, express a religious vision, you wouldn't include all that stuff. And for a journalist, it's terrific because it's the detail. It's always the yes. small detail which it, which really conveys humanity. And my final thought, Caleb, about being a journalist and reading it is the gospel, the, the Bible had terrific sub-editors. They always name the names. They always get to the point. In journalism, you're taught to put the first big fact first, the most important thing first, and uh, the, the, um, the Bible typically does that. Uh, so you can see that. Um, and then, of course, it validates the very vocation of journalism because it's all about the power of accurate reporting. <laughs> it's very well said. Very well said, Greg. I, I love the fact that you're uh, drawn to Luke. Totally agree with his uh, detailed um, and, and he, you're right, he makes a very big fuss uh, at the beginning of the book of putting it in order, he says. I'm going to put it in order for you, maybe even suggesting that some of the uh, writers before him weren't so uh, clever and maybe hadn't written it as well as it could be. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating you're drawn to him. You're obviously drawn to the humanity uh, of the Bible and the humanity of even modern-day Christians uh, as they understand Jesus. I, that really struck me as I read the book. The first part really seems like it's the humanity, as you were saying, of these figures in the Bible. And the second part of the book is the humanity of modern day people who love Jesus and are trying to do practical good works, uh, I suppose, to shine the light uh, of the gospel. And, and and that really, really struck me. Is that true? What is, is that something that um, grabbed you in the Bible? Or have you always been really grabbed by the humanity of people it's something that really grabbed me in the bible so the last book uh, god is good for you was a bit of an answer to the new atheists among other things and because they defame the god of the old testament so grossly i spent a lot of time in the old testament and i found the old testament to be fabulous uh, you know magnificent transcendent moral teaching but also fabulous fun you know the book of jonah and beautiful stories like the book of Ruth and so on. And again, I'm ashamed to say I hadn't spent enough time in the Old Testament prior to that. With this book, I was struck by the immediacy. So I spent a couple of years really in the New Testament, read a lot of the scholarship about the New Testament as well. But um, the, the humanity of the figures in the New Testament struck me. So, of course, the overwhelming personality of Jesus himself, but also... Uh, the agency and courage of Mary, the wonder of John. John's tone of voice is unlike anything else you've got in human literature. Just the, the sheer wonder that he has at uh, yeah. at the phenomenon of Jesus Christ. And then, as I say, I think Paul is a very good figure, very interesting figure. He's certainly one of the great figures of history, one of the pivotal figures yes. of history. But also, he stands in place of the modern believer because Paul, uh, like Luke, I suppose, didn't know Jesus personally when Jesus was doing his his ministry he had a spiritual uh, encounter with Jesus but he didn't um, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles who walked uh, you know Galilee and so forth with uh, with Jesus and so therefore he he is a an example for the modern believer about what an yes. intense relationship a believer can have with 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 Christ uh, and Paul uh, is is a wonderfully human figure he he says himself he's um he's not perfect he has the thorn in his flesh of his own sinfulness mm -hmm. um there are moments when he's near despair where he wonders if anything he has done has had any had any effect 
there are moments when he's meek and submissive. I fell in love with the book to the Galatians. And uh, mm -hmm. the start of the book, he says, I went up to Jerusalem. I sought out Peter. He calls him Cephas, the Aramaic word, and James and John and asked if I was preaching the right stuff. And they said, yes, good on your son. Don't forget the poor. And, and then... So that's Paul being very meek and mild, a team player. Then a minute later, he recounts a terrific dispute he has with Cephas about whether uh, whether the early disciples should eat with Gentiles or, or not. And um, he's, he's ferocious. He says, I said to Cephas to his face, you stand condemned. Listen to me, son. You've just got this completely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Then he goes on a bit. There are magnificent moral lessons, of course, in, in Galatians, his magnificent statement of, uh, the universality of Christ's love. There is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Then he's uh, very upset with the people who are misleading the Galatians, and he says, I wish they would all go and castrate themselves. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a bit of humour in what Paul's saying. He obviously does mean it literally, but uh, it's well, pretty... Well, taking pretty, it literally. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, a pretty... It was a bit of a problem in the early church, wasn't it? Castration. They took some of that yeah. stuff a bit too literally. <laughs> and and it's, it's a pretty um, rough rhetoric for an apostle of love to a fledgling church. So you take all this together, and Paul is magnificent, but again, you, you couldn't make this up. It just has the absolute yeah. ring of authenticity. Then there's that beautiful passage in Peter where he says, I know... So Peter's the boss... Paul is the genius. Peter has wisdom. Paul has brilliance. And mm. Peter says at one point, uh, I know Paul is a bit hard to understand at parts and it's easy to misinterpret him. But listen to me. He is my beloved brother and what he writes is scripture. So there's Peter kind of giving Paul the mandate, reinforcing, yes, okay, this is a bit difficult. Now, just putting all that together, um, these figures from the New Testament are very vivid as human beings. They're not perfect. Yes. Peter Peter constantly fails uh, Jesus. And um, the early church tradition is that Peter is the main source for Mark. Now, Mark has all these episodes where Peter does badly, you know, where Peter falls yeah. asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Peter denies Jesus, having said, I'll never, never uh, betray you, Lord, I'll never deny you. Peter denies Jesus three times out of cowardice. And you can see Peter telling Mark, I want you to put that in because I want everyone to know how fallible we uh, we apostles were and how we were lifted up by Christ's love. We didn't uh, we didn't have the he didn't pick us like a Harvard MBA picks the best, brightest, yeah. most brilliant people. And um, Peter never loses faith in Jesus. But more importantly, Jesus never loses faith in Peter. And eventually, of course, Peter is a magnificent church leader and goes to a martyr's death and so on. So I, I was just overwhelmed by the human immediacy uh, of the story of the gospel. And um, yeah, then the people 2,000 years later that I interview, you can see they're operating in the same the same mindset. Yeah. Now, I love, I love the way you express it, Greg, and obviously you yourself are, are very animated and, 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 and happy about what you've read and... Uh, uh, excited, I think, about the prospect uh, of the gospel, even in our modern times uh, where Christianity is in decline. And I, I love the way that you really brought the colour uh, of people uh, in the Bible, modern day people through. I think it's something that we really miss in the church uh, at times. And uh, as Christians, uh, we like to sugarcoat things. We like things to look 
perfect our spiritual lives to look a particular way um, but that isn't the message of the gospel is it it is a messy gospel it is real people struggling wrestling with their faith uh, doubting their way uh, to faith if you like uh, people are, are the arguments the working things out the being a community uh, together and I like the way that uh, the book is very earthy in that sense it, it really gets down and dirty and into that stuff but from that human uh, struggle and mess there's always a shining light uh, of the gospel and, and and of Christ coming through which is which is really really powerful so the uh, you mentioned early in the book uh, about Christ uh, speaking of him and uh, let me find the quote exactly so the most radical idea of Christianity you said is that unique in all human history is perhaps not finally the resurrection of Jesus but the death of Jesus Talk to us a little bit about that statement. So the death, maybe more than the resurrection, is significant. Sure thing, Caleb. Um, just before we move to that subject, I'll just offer you a final reflection on the, the messy humanity of the figures in the gospel. So one great lesson is that even the very best people, life you can't avoid life's messiness and its difficulties yeah. and its awkwardness. And uh, I identified very much with uh, and became very devoted, really, to Joseph of Arimathea. because he has a conversation with Jesus before, before the crucifixion. And Jesus tells him who he is. And Joseph is, is uh, alive enough to believe it. He accepts it. But he's not brave enough to come out as a public follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus is crucified. And you can identify with Joseph's cowardice that he wouldn't come out with Jesus in advance. But then Joseph's mere self-respect, he feels tremendous solidarity with his friend Jesus who has died. And Jesus has died and the whole world is against him. And Joseph then finds his courage to come and claim Jesus' body. And of course, so much of history uh, hinges on this because he then took Jesus' body to the tomb from, from which Jesus rose from the dead. But what I love about Joseph of Arimathea is you can identify with his cowardice. We know that Jesus is true, but we're very scared of the implications of this and scared to follow it publicly. But at the same time, we're moved to transcend our own cowardice. And I think Joseph of Arimathea, in transcending his own cowardice, even before Jesus rose from the dead, uh, deserves a sort of a special place in memory. Now, sorry, that's a terrible digression, but... Um, <laughs> The crucifixion, so I do believe that the, so in reading the New Testament, the most stark and terrible and immediate thing is the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's mm -hmm. not it's not a pretty thing, it's a terrible thing. And it's still so uh, vivid and immediate in the New Testament. A again, you think no one could possibly be making this up. Uh, mm -hmm. It has absolutely the ring of terrible authenticity about it. And um, I do think, it is the most radical claim of Christianity. So other religious traditions have thought about God or, or a polytheistic God walking on the earth. You know, so in the Hindu tradition, Krishna walks on the earth. It's typically in a time before time, a kind of a mythical time. It's not a historic event. You know, the Greek gods interacted with, with uh, human beings, according to legend. But, uh, and every religious tradition which believes in God would think that God would conquer death. So Krishna is not killed and murdered and so on uh, in the Hindu tradition on earth. But 
As far as I know, there is no other religious sensibility which has the idea of the eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, everlasting, causeless cause, prime mover God, becoming a human being and then suffering humiliation and torture and physical death, dying. What does it mean for God to die? I read a very uh, powerful book about Jesus, fully human, fully divine, by a Cistercian monk, uh, Michael Casey. And he just teaches the lesson which is central to Christianity, which is that Jesus is always a human being all the way through the gospel. And he is always God all the way through the gospel. So yeah. on the on the cross, he bears his suffering with great dignity and courage, but it, it churns him up. He feels the terrible alienation of suffering and the the um, loneliness of it. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he weeps tears of blood and, uh, and he's beside himself and he calms himself with prayer. Then on the, on the cross, he's borne it all with such dignity, but finally one phrase is wrung from him, I thirst. It's almost unbearable when you read it, that he's had mm. hours of torture. And then two, two final elements of being on the cross. One was um, almost the last thing he says is to look down at Mary and say to her, this is your son, referring to John, and to look down at John and say, this is your mother. And again, this is both divine and human because Jesus is concerned for the welfare of his mother. And every, every person I've seen near death in a hospice or a hospital has had the grace to be concerned about the people they leave behind. You know, an uncle of mine, almost the last thing he said on his deathbed to a nurse was, won't you get my wife a cup of tea? So he was thinking at the last of the welfare of his wife. And um, we can't remember anything about our birth. We can't really remember our resurrection, but we're all going to face death. And Jesus shows us, in a sense, uh, what that can mean. The other thing uh, is that where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I'm aware that this is the first line of a psalm, which is ultimately triumphant and hopeful. But at the same time, I do think this is what Jesus was feeling. He was feeling terrible alienation and suffering on the cross. Because he was divine, that didn't mean he didn't suffer the human pains. And because he was a more sensitive person than any other human being, I think he would have suffered the pain more intensely. But at the same time as he was suffering that terrible human pain and alienation, and perhaps even temptation, to despair, a temptation he resisted, he still was God. So he could say to the good thief, I tell you this day you will be with me in paradise. And mm -hmm. uh, this combination, so it's it's a simple truth in a way, Jesus was man and Jesus was God, but it's also a profound mystery. Uh, there are elements of it that we absolutely cannot understand. I think the crucifixion is with the resurrection at the center of Christianity. And I thought that was the right place to start because it's certainly the most visceral, dramatic, and I think important um, uh, episode in the, in the gospel. Definitely. And, and you go on to talk a bunch about, I mean, talking about Christ's divinity and humanity. Uh, you, you talk quite a bit about the human side, the historicity uh, of Christ and the fact that I suppose without faith even or without belief even, um, the proof that Christ was a real man living in first century 
Palestine is quite evident. I mean, the evidence is is overwhelming, isn't it? Above any other ancient uh, figure in history, really. And and I think you make a great point there, Greg. That's it's interesting the dynamics of his humanity, humanity, sorry, and his divinity. There's the Jesus of Nazareth, a real Jewish man who lived in the first century. Uh, and then that same man is uh, the son of God uh, who came down to earth in human form. And lots of people could die on a cross. Lots of humans died on a cross, uh, but only one human ever rose from the dead. And that really speaks to cross uh, divinity there, which is really, really powerful. So I think you're spot on. I think you started in the right spot. That is definitely true. And as a pastor, I uh, that's what I have to say, because that's what I that's what I should be preaching as well. So. I love that. But, but why did you go into the historicity of Christ so deeply? So for me, for some of the guys uh, who listen to this podcast that are Christians, the historicity of Christ is a little bit shoulder shrugging in a way. It's it's quite obvious, the evidence. Um, and Christianity really isn't about the fact that he was a human at the end of the day, although that's a powerful piece, as you were saying. It's really Christianity only has power in the fact that he rose from the dead and in the fact that he was revealed as the son of God. So why spend the time on the historicity? What were you going after there? Well, Caleb, um, you know, those are very good points you make, and I agree with everything you say. Um, a couple of reasons that I wrote this chapter saying that scholarship now is very clear that uh, Jesus lived and so on. Uh, Jesus is a historical figure. The, the whole modernist project, it seems to me, over the last few hundred years has been to try to uh, take religion out of society and to take, try to take divinity out of um, out of Christianity. And it's done this through sort of two propositions. One is the idea that belief in God is irrational, that science has decided against God and so on. Science has decided no such thing. And I really wrote my first book about Christianity, God is Good for You, to address that. Christians shouldn't be bluffed out of their faith. I don't want Christians to think, gosh, I believe this, but science claims that it's not true. Science makes no yeah. such claim. And a gazillion scientists are profound Christian believers. There is nothing inconsistent between science and Christianity. But then the second great claim that, that uh, the modernist project makes is that the Bible is not true, that it's a, a book of falsehoods. In, in particular, uh, the New Testament was doctored, interfered with, written later by uh, manipulative church leaders to try to uh, inject divinity. Maybe Jesus never even really lived and so on. Now, 200 years ago, this was quite the vogue. And as you say, why should we be worried about 200 years ago? So I only devote one chapter to this, but I want modern Christians to know that as a matter of fact, scholarship now validates everything we can test in the New Testament. Now, I don't believe that you can prove the resurrection historically. There's loads of evidence which is, you know, sympathetic to the resurrection account. It fits with all the known facts best, but I don't think history proves the resurrection, as I don't believe reason proves God, although you can get to God through reason. But historicity, yeah. historical inquiry certainly proves that Jesus was a historical figure. He lived at the time the Gospels say. He... Uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died in crucifixion. Very shortly thereafter, the early Jesus movement claimed that he had risen from the dead and he was the son of God. Now, um, you don't believe in Christianity because scholarship has come back to 
validating the New Testament, obviously. If the scholars told me it was all wrong, I'd say, well, the poor old scholars are wrong. But, but we, modern readers should know that scholarship actually tells us more or less that it's all right. And the, mm. the more scholarship we get, the, the better um, this validation is. If I give you just one or two real quick examples, but... Yeah, please. You know, so, I've, you know, I've been a lifelong Christian. I've had an interest in these things and been reading books and so on. But until I did the research, even I didn't know how, what a slam dunk, how clear the scholarship is. So a couple yes. of hundred years ago, there was this notion that the Gospels had been written hundreds of years after the event and were the result of a long oral tradition and therefore had all kinds of um, distortions and falsehoods uh, put in, in them in that process. Then archaeology discovers a part of John's Gospel, which is unmistakably a part of John's Gospel. The, the words only fit that way in Egypt, which can't be later than the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century. Well, that just wipes out a whole lot of previous scholarship because you can't argue that the Gospels were written 200 years later if the latest gospel, the gospel all scholars think was written last, was written, became accepted as, as scripture, was circulated and then taken as far as Egypt. And if we've discovered a fragment, then there must have been dozens or perhaps hundreds of copies in Egypt. If all that happened by the end of the first century, for sure, by physical evidence, then uh, that just wipes out this whole silly idea that the gospel's very late. And it's clear that the Gospels were written at the most within one lifetime at the end of, of after Jesus' death. Amazing. Then amazing. We, we discover all these Dead Sea Scrolls. They don't really directly affect the New Testament. There's no crossover character. But they do tell you a lot about Jewish life and um, and they tell you how accurately the Jewish scriptures were preserved because they're, yeah. they're the same as physical scriptures a thousand years later. But what they do show you is the... Uh, texture of Jewish life at the time of the Gospels and all of the things which in the Gospels might have seemed like a bit strange are in fact elements of normal Jewish life. So debates over who you eat with, intense debates over who you eat with, ethical debates over if a if a goat falls in a well on the Sabbath, can you, can you rescue the goat because that's work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So everything that the Gospel portrays about rural Jewish life is validated in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, again, if urban Christians a hundred years later were making this up, uh, they couldn't have got it that accurately. And there are a hundred such examples, but I'll just give you one final one. Most victims of crucifixion were typically not given individual graves. They were thrown into a common pit. So scholars used to say, it's clearly an anachronism. The New Testament has made up this idea that Jesus having suffered crucifixion, died and been buried, uh, was buried in a, in a separate individual grave. But then archaeologists discover a Jewish tomb of a Jewish man who has been crucified. We've got the nail marks in his ankles and so on. And his bones were collected in an ossuary or however that's pronounced. And he had a separate burial and a separate tomb. So that establishes that while throwing bodies into a pit may have been the normal course of things, some uh, victims of crucifixion were given separate tombs. Now, I'll finish there, but there are just 200 such examples which show us that every physical thing that we can test out of the New Testament is true. So then there are some non-Christian sources about Jesus, the 
Jewish historian Josephus and various Roman historians. They don't believe in Jesus. The Roman historians um, hold Jesus in contempt. They only mention him in passing, just what you'd expect, because at the time he was considered a minor figure in a backwater of the empire. But they all um, establish also the, the historicity of Jesus. So my object in that chapter is not to say believe in the divinity of Jesus because scholarship tells us this is so. It's rather to reassure Christians that everything they believe is consistent with history. And then finally, as a journalist, I would always prefer the ancient church tradition to the modern biblical scholarship, although I recognise a great deal of biblical scholarship is very valuable. But if I'm looking for an account of a political event, I want someone who was there or I want um, someone who spoke to someone who was there. So the ancient church traditions, which hold that the authorships of the Gospels is is who, who we believe wrote them and so on, I would put much greater weight in the ancient church traditions. So then you've got the whole generation after the apostles, the apostolic fathers who knew the apostles personally. Again, if this is all a conspiracy, it's uh, it's very well, uh, you know, it's astonishingly diverse conspiracy. They put all of those historical sources together, plus all of the Christian sources. The Christian sources are pro-Jesus, but they're very valuable historical sources. And as you said earlier, Caleb, Jesus is the best authenticated and most thoroughly documented figure in the entirety of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. What I'm just loving hearing you talk about all this, Greg. You uh, put it together so well, mate, and uh, it's fantastic. It seems like you are attempting to really wrestle away maybe from Christians uh, any doubt that they might have or any of the... I'd love to talk about this uh, modernist project, as you call it, and our uh, cultural situation that we have right now in the West or in Australia. And it seems like part of what you're trying to do, maybe your target audience was trying to wrestle away uh, some of that confusion that modernism has brought uh, to faith, uh, or has brought to Christians, or has tried to throw them off the scent, if you like, uh, with all this very... You mentioned The New Atheist before, and uh, I've read most of those books, The New Atheism, and it's, it's very bombastic, uh, exaggerated, uh, colourful language, uh, emotionally, you know, emotive language really used to try and throw people away from the Bible and from Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of Christians who probably have a genuine faith um, get caught in that and, and, and don't probably have the time, maybe like you and I, to read through some of the deeper things. Uh, and uh, they have other things to do, like raise families and pay for their mortgages. <laughs> but it sounds like maybe part of what you were trying to do is actually give some clarity to the uh, modern day Aussie Christian uh, who just wants to follow Jesus to help them understand that it isn't confusing. It isn't a bunch of fallacies. The new atheism and these kind of movements really aren't saying anything new. That is for sure. Um, they're the same ancient arguments that have been thrown at Christianity for a long time. So would that be true? What, what was your target audience, Greg? Who, who were you trying to help? Well, Caleb, you're, you're certainly right. I, I wanted to, um, there's a wonderful line from the poet Les Murray, the, the greatest Australian poet. He says, um, has a wonderful line. He says, nowadays, snobs try to mind us off religion. And uh, what he means by mind is intimidate us off religion. Then he uses rather bad language. He says, F them. And then he says, as a benign close, I wish you God. I wish you God. But snobs try to mind us off religion. So snobs, in, in Les Murray's words, are trying to bluff us um, out of religion. 
What, what, and I don't think Christians should be bluffed out of their religion or anyone considering Christianity should be. Yeah, now, well as I say, you don't, you don't believe in Christianity because, you know, a splendid biblical scholar like Richard Borkham establishes that John is the author of John, just as John says in the gospel itself. And of course, I can't understand Christians who, who take a really uh, uh, hostile view to the veracity and historicity of the gospels because if John is not the author, that means John, whoever pretended to be John, is telling a lie. If Luke is not the author, whoever pretended to be Luke is telling a lie. And if the thing is a lie, just forget about it. I'd, I'd rather, you know, I'll, I'll go to the races or I'll be to the beach or something. But of course, it's not a lie. And Christians and people considering Christianity shouldn't be bluffed out of it. Then whether they respond to Jesus and so on is up to them. Who, who is my target audience? So again, as a journalist, Publishers ask you this all the time. Who, who do you think this book is for? It's a perfectly legitimate question, a central question. If you've got no idea who your reader is, you, you're going to write, you know, uh, all over the shop. But I tried to write this book really from first principles and in the same tone of voice as I've written all my journalism for 40 years. I've been a professional, full-time professional journalist for 42 years. This is my eighth book. And in, in all my books and in all my journalism, I'm really aiming at the general reader. So I'm thrilled if Christians read it and maybe find a little confirmation. I'm thrilled if former Christians read it and maybe, and a lot of people in that category, people who've fallen away from yes. Christianity, have read the book and got in touch with me and said either in some wonderful cases it brought them back or in, in every case it made them think, which is, that's wonderful. I'm thrilled. I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for a reaction like that. I'm very happy if atheists read it. The the best media discussion I had on the book was with um, an ABC journalist, Richard Glover, in Sydney, uh, 702. Richard is a really wonderful person. He is a brilliant person. I did write to him once and object to his interview because I said it's very unfair for the questions to be so much more penetrating and clever than the answers. He really <laughs> read, he thought about this book deeply, the same with the last book. Now, he said to me, uh, wonderful thing for him to say. He said it didn't make him a Christian, although I'd, I'd add brackets yet. But uh, I, I don't mean that. I'm not. I'm not verbaling him, and that's just a hope. That's not what he, he didn't. He didn't say yet. He said he didn't make him a Christian. But he said he could understand now what all the fuss was about regarding Jesus. Why Jesus' personal life and sacrifice meant so much to so many people and inspired so many people. So that's a thrilling reaction. I don't deserve that reaction. That's a wonderful reaction. So I'm very happy if atheists read it. I'm very, very happy if um, people of other faiths read it. Uh, in one of the media discussions, a Muslim woman said she was thrilled to see uh, Scott Morrison assert his faith so publicly and without uh, uh, apology because it gave her space to assert her faith. Well, that's, yeah. I think that's, that's a very nice reaction. So really, I'm aiming for uh, the civilized layperson, as it were, or, 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 or clergyman to, you know, one thing we're losing in the West is the concept of the public square, where we can all go there with our different assumptions and our different backgrounds and have a civilized discussion. And I think digital media, although it has tremendous strengths, it tends to ghettoization, whereas the old mainstream media you know, if you write something on the front page of The Australian, you're, you're presenting that to every person in Australia and now digitally around the world. 
And that's also a discipline too. That's why you, one of the reasons you try to write from first principles, because you don't, you're not trying to use jargon or write for an inset, inside set. It's not an inside baseball. Any, you know, any intelligent person should be able to follow, uh, follow your arguments. Mm-hmm. So, so Christianity in the West then, Greg, Christianity in Australia. I mean, we're both Aussies. We live in Melbourne. Uh, we love our country. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, like me, you're you're a little bit disappointed in the decline of Christianity. Um, or, although it's not it's not a problem, is it for God? He he knows what he's doing, and we're going to be fine. But but you talk a little bit about ignorance in the book. I think there was a, a quote in the second or third chapter where you talk. Uh, uh, um, I've got it right here. What, what do you say? You said it's a weeping pity from every angle, which 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 I I, I liked that kind of summary. A weeping pity that there's an ignorance around Christianity in our culture now. And even like you're saying with Rod Glover, possibly uh, the, the lack of understanding of what the Christian message really is. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. You're a lot um, broader in what you see than I, that's for sure, around the world and even around our country. Where do you think Christianity is at in our culture and uh, what do you think is really going on? Well, Caleb, uh, that's a big question. And um I do think it's right for Christians to be very honest. Um, I spend a lot of time with the military, and uh, one thing a, a commander always tries to achieve is situational awareness, which means the ability to integrate a whole lot of information all coming in at once and to do it in real time so that you know how to respond in the battle space, as the soldiers call it. A lot of my Christian friends don't like all my military metaphors, but there you go. You know, you can't please them, especially with your metaphors. But, very Australian. Um, Uh, Yeah, indeed. I think Christianity is in decline in the West, but it's a a limited decline and it's only in the West. By the West, I mean Western Europe, North America, Australia and New Zealand. And Mm. uh, being foreign editor, in a sense, prepared me to write this book because everywhere else in the world, uh, religion is on fire. Christianity is on fire in Africa. In China, there are two chapters in the book about Chinese Christians and Chinese Christians have gone from... 4 million when the communists took over to anywhere between 60 and 120 million today in the face of terrible persecution. Mm. So that, that's a magnificent uh, uh, birth of Christianity in China. Now, also spending a lot of my time in Asia, as I do, uh, Asia is intensely religious. The idea that um, an Indonesian would ever be embarrassed to tell you that they're a Muslim uh you know, I've been at official Indonesian meetings with foreign ministry officials and so forth. Well, they'll say to you at the appointed time, excuse me, I have to go and pray for five minutes. And nobody thinks that's weird. And I certainly didn't regard it as offensive or anything. So, you know, the idea that in the Philippines, a leader would be embarrassed to tell you he's a Catholic. In Thailand, a leader would be embarrassed to assert Buddhism. In India, a leader or a literary figure would be embarrassed to own up to Hinduism. Uh, or in Indonesia, Islam or so on, is just absurd. So it's it's actually us who are the oddballs of history. The Western yes. society is going down a very weird cul-de-sac. The vast majority of people alive in the world today believe in God. The vast majority of people who have ever lived believed in God. Belief in God, as it were, is in our DNA. God is in our, is in our DNA. Uh, uh, you know, we, we yearn for God the way we're hungry for food. And... The fact that you're hungry implies the existence of food. The fact that you yearn for God implies the existence of God. But having said all that, in the West, uh, 
Christianity is in ambient decline. Now, you're quite right. We've got reasons for being optimistic. Jesus has said to us, the gates of hell will never prevail against you. Uh, so we've got every reason to be optimistic. Uh, the wonderful Nicky Gumbel, who, um, who is the great uh, leader of the Alpha Course uh, in London, the uh, rector at Holy Trinity Brompton, London, he recalled to me, as other church leaders have, difficult times the church has had in the past. He said in 1750 in London, 16 people came to Easter services at St. Paul's Cathedral, 16 people, and there were 10,000 sex workers walking the streets of London, and it looked like Christianity was kaput in England, as if it had had its day and it was finished. And then, of course, along came um, the Wesleys, the great Methodist revival, the Wilberforce, the great Christian revival all through Britain, and really right up until the 1960s, Britain was on a on a tremendous revival of Christianity. Then you had, you know, central figures in the 20th century like Billy Graham and so on. Now, what the stage we've got to at the moment is very peculiar. <clears throat> uh, popular culture and elite culture have turned against Christianity. So the universities, a lot of the media, uh, whereas 50 or 60 years ago, all the best-selling books and all the Academy Award-winning movies, a large number of them were pro-Christian, everything from How Green Was My Valley to Sound of Music. Today, very few movies are pro-Christian, very few books are pro-Christian. So we're back in a minority status. We're kind of in exile again. But being in the minority gives you quite a lot of strength. You expect to get uh, have your ideas beaten up a bit and you expect to be um, uh, ridiculed. And also you can demand minority rights, which is not minority rights for us as individuals, but minority rights for the truth. It's a complex situation in the West because it's partly post-Christian, people who grew up with some knowledge of Christianity and rejected it. It's partly Christian because Christians are still a very big minority. Maybe, you know, 45 or 50% of Australians still would uh, describe themselves as Christians. But then the, the entirely new thing is we're also getting a pre-Christian society. So young mm. people now get no acquaintance with Christianity through their education. You know, they don't read the, the magnificent books of the New Testament should be read by non-Christians as literature, history, politics, psychology, everything. Uh, the writings of Paul are central to Western civilization, but nobody gets that education. The universities have turned against Christianity. And so you've got a whole generation which is kind of pre-Christian. Now that's bad in a way, but it's good in a way too, because they haven't Exciting. been inoculated. Yeah, they, they haven't been immunized against Christianity. They haven't exactly. learned as a point of doctrine that Christianity is the boring stuff of their grandparents. But a final reflection, at the same time though, we are creating, and the Jewish uh, rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a beautiful passage on this. We are creating a, um, a kind of neo-pagan society. The last mm -hmm. pagan society was very difficult for people to live in, hypersexualized, very bad for women and girls, very brutal. The only thing that mediated was power. And the West is recreating elements of hyper-pagan, uh, of, of neo-pagan society. So that's all a complicated and interesting, swirling sort of reality for us to deal with. And we can deal with it by knowing what's going on and also by can, keeping our eye on the main, the main game, which is the Christian message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, in a lot of ways, as a pastor, Greg, I 
will say in sermons or say to people who will listen to me. Sometimes my congregation members will listen to me. Uh, I welcome, I welcome the persecution in a sense, not that you can really call it persecution, but I welcome the, uh, the, the, the looking down, maybe the snobbery, as you said, towards Christianity, because it does give us a great chance to get our message in order. It kind of really trims the fat and we have to know what we're talking about. Uh, I grew up in a Christian culture, um, Pentecostal Christian culture, which had a high focus and emphasis on the things of the spirit, which was fantastic. And I, I appreciate um, that upbringing. But as I've got older, I've realized that the high focus on the things of the spirit uh, doesn't really help you as much when you do come into the marketplace, into the marketplace of ideas. Uh, you need to be able to articulate your worldview, uh, not only clearly, but also in a whimsical way, which I think you've done really well in the book, in a way that's clever, in a way that's compelling, uh, and to an audience that uh, isn't Christian, that, that doesn't have a grid for Christianity anymore. It's a post-Christian audience in a lot of ways. My heart really, Greg, goes out to the next generation, especially Gen Z, who are growing up with uh, Jesus, the only thing they know about Jesus is that name as a swear word. There's absolutely no grid or landscape for Christian ideals at all. Yet the culture we live in, ironically, uh, is, is, is pinned on Christian values. And, 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 and that's what's encouraged even in media and politics and whatever is Christian values. We've just taken the, the Christ element away and the gospel element away, which is which is very, very sad. So I think it's going to be an interesting season, but I suppose my point is I welcome that. And I think there is a great opportunity for the next generation to have uh, a fair go at hearing the gospel uh, without too many, too much smokescreen, I suppose, as you say. And I haven't heard anyone talk as you did, Greg, Greg about a pre-Christian um, opportunity. I love that, that pre-Christian uh, idea. And I think the church and, and Christians should be really thinking about that, strategizing about that, um, uh, approaching the community with that in mind, that pre-Christian element. Mm. So Caleb, um, that's fascinating what you say. I'd offer two reflections. One is that um, the rejection of Christianity has often used Christian categories. That's absolutely true to, uh, to reject Christianity and sometimes to criticize Christians, um, you know, we we certainly have done our bad things. Lots of Christians have done lots and lots of bad things. And so sometimes we deserve to be criticised. And that's often taken with Christian categories. However, the, the, the more you cut contemporary society, society off from its Christian roots. So I agree with you, Caleb. Everything we like in modern liberalism comes directly from Christianity, like universal human rights, equality of men and women. This all comes from the idea that... Uh, Human beings are created in God's image that there is neither slave nor, nor, nor free, and neither Greek nor Jew. These are essential Christian ideas. But the more profoundly you cut society off from the Christian roots, the more these ideas get perverted and go crazy. So a couple of years ago, I was on a, a panel of Q&A, the ABC program, and one of my fellow guests was Peter Singer, the atheist philosopher. Very nice man, Peter Singer, very decent human being very useful atheist philosopher because he takes ideas through their logical conclusions. And I was taxing him about something he'd put in a book that um, handicapped children, profoundly handicapped children should be left to die if their parents don't want to look after them. And that they, because they have less utility than a sentient 
mammal, a chimpanzee or a dog or a cat. And I was objecting to this. And he said to me in a very sort of collegial way, he said, but what are you saying, Greg? You're really saying that just because they're members of our species, we should keep them alive. And I said, yes, that's absolutely exactly what I'm thinking. Because they are human beings, they have an inherent, essential, undeniable human dignity that we must uh, respect and celebrate for every moment, even if they are profoundly handicapped or they have some other characteristic that, uh, that we don't approve of. Now, as I say, Peter Singh is a tremendously civilised, good person, but that is where society goes when it finally severs all connection to its Christian roots. And that's why I think you get this madness of identity politics, because there's a kind of neurotic existential fear behind liberalism when you cut it off from Christianity, because it doesn't know what its ultimate point is. It has no final reference. So it makes an absolute out of everything else. The other thing, Caleb, I don't know if you want to have a brief discussion about um, my encounter with your denomination, Pentecostalism, because I've become a terrific admirer of Pentecostals. So I write this book very much from a um, what C.S. Lewis called a mere Christianity point of view. That is to say, I don't adjudicate between denominations or nothing like that. And all the denominations are friends now. And I'm really writing for uh, or writing about any Christian who can assent to the Apostles' Creed. You know, that's I just take that as the problem. And so if we agree on 99% of everything, let's not fight to the death over the 1%. But in the, in the last book, I had a long encounter with uh, Pentecostal Christianity, and I came to love it. So I don't favour one denomination over another. But uh, one thing I love about Pentecostals, but tell me if I say something wrong here, is that because they're a relatively contemporary movement, they, they may not have the long institutions of Anglicans or Catholics, you know, the ancient universities and schools, but they're very comfortable in the contemporary world. They're very good at social media. Uh, so I interview in this book, a great American Pentecostal pastor, uh, uh, Sammy Rodriguez, who's a, who's a, leads the biggest Hispanic Pentecostal uh, group of churches in America. He's got 42,000 member churches. Now, one thing he does is he's very um, conscious of how the culture has turned against Christianity. He's very conscious of the battle to transmit Christianity to, to young folks today to get them to listen about it at all. So one thing he does is he produces Hollywood movies and uh, with uh, mainstream Hispanic stars because a lot of Hispanics still uh, believe in Christianity. So, you know, one of the things I celebrate in this book is a TV series, Jane the Virgin, because it's, uh, despite its weird title, it's a pro-Christian TV series because it's celebrating uh, Hispanics, and you can't celebrate Hispanics and deny their Christianity. So Pastor Sammy Rodriguez has produced three Hollywood movies which have been financially successful and have a pro-Christian theme. And that doesn't change the culture overnight, but three movies are a lot better than no movies. And, um, mm. and it also does show Hollywood that the Christian audience is very big and there's, uh, there's money to be made um, uh, mm. giving a Christian message. And... Um, the other thing is my own uh, church tradition is is very traditional church music, but I absolutely love the quality of music in Pentecostal churches. You know, so they, it's Christian uh, worship in a rock and roll idiom sometimes. Uh, I'm not... <laughs> I mean this 
in a completely positive way. I, I hope fine. I don't say the wrong thing. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, it's beautiful. It's really well done. This, these, this is music which, which pleases God. I think with the with the effort and the energy and the virtuosity. And the final reflection I offer to you in the last book, I, I put a, a chapter where I consider Pentecostals and Benedictine monks in the same chapter. And at first, they seem like such radically different styles of Christianity. But I spent some time in a Benedictine monastery and I spent some time with the Planet Shakers. And I found that the uh, Bible verses which were on the screen at the Planet Shakers were the same Bible verses that the monks were chanting in the Benedictine monastery. And I thought, actually, these these folks, they certainly belong to the same religion, the Benedictines and the Pentecostals. And they're celebrating the same Bible and they're, they're devoted to the same Jesus. And uh, uh, I found both of them uh, absolutely inspiring. And I, I've become a big a big fan of Pentecostals. And in, the, in this book, I deal with Pentecostalism mainly in the chapter about uh, Scott Morrison. But, um, mm. but I... I, I Although I don't compare one denomination to another unfavorably, I love the way Pentecostals engage with young people and with contemporary culture and contemporary technology. Yeah, yeah, well, well said. And I, I did notice on the front cover of your book, you had a little uh, quote there from Russell Evans, uh, the Planet Shakers pastor. So you've done well to appeal to the uh, Pentecostals that might be out there to read your book. Uh, I, I, I think you're right. I think something that Pentecostalism can bring uh, to the body of Christ, if you like, to, to, to Christendom in that sense is the enthusiasm for sure. And I think that that is um, possibly in Pentecostalism, that enthusiasm may be a bit of a reaction in a way to the historically mainline uh, churches. But I, I think that, that, that that's important. I think the other piece is the contextualization, and that's maybe what you're saying with young people and technology and what have you is... Uh, I think there's a lot more nimbleness and flexibility in in the a Pentecostal approach to Christianity or a charismatic approach, and that allows it to be a little bit more maybe in touch at times with the culture and looking for a way to contextualise the gospel. You never change the gospel. It's, it's eternal. It's unchangeable. You can't change the message of Jesus. It will always be offensive. It's not about making it not offensive. Uh, the gospel is offensive to us all. It's offensive to our sin. It's offensive to our fallenness. Um, but I think there's uh, maybe a little bit more flexibility to go, yeah, but how do we deliver this in a way that is going to be more receptive, which essentially is just the work of a good missionary, isn't it? How do I engage with the culture I'm trying to reach and present the truth in a way that's going to be uh, heard by the people I'm trying to reach? And I'm, I'm with you, Greg. I'm a big believer in using technology and using culture and using uh, movies, what have you, to, to, to bring salt and light uh, into the marketplace and, and, and into the public square. So um, I did love the chapter uh, where you talked about the different Australian uh, Christians and John Anderson and, and, and Peter Cosgrove and, and, and especially uh, the first Pentecostal uh, Prime Minister that we've had, uh, Scott Morrison. And, and how do you think that he is going how do you think that he handles his faith in such a public, uh, important role in, in, in our nation? Well, I, I think he's doing very well on that score. And um, and the fourth the fourth person in that chapter was Bill Hayden, the former Labor leader. So there's no there's no liberal versus Labor agenda in this book, uh, and um, there's no left versus right thing. But uh, I've known Scamo a long time. Uh, one of the great things about journalism is you meet a lot of uh, 
you meet a lot of politicians, you swim in the same soup as politicians, you know, you, you, live, the, you live your life with them really over, over tens of years. And um, uh, I, th I think, uh, so I, I don't make a comment really on, on the politics of any of these folks, you know, I'm not judging. Hopefully I don't tell anyone how to vote or anything like that. But, but I think all the, all the Christian politicians that I've met have been very sincere and genuinely well-motivated and uh, sometimes very modest about their Christianity because they're modest about their own lives. One of the things to like very much about Scott Morrison is that he's very direct and straightforward about his Christian belief. So he doesn't try to um, uh, ram it down anyone's throat and he doesn't regard the Bible as a, as a policy handbook. The Bible doesn't tell you what you should do about fiscal policy or whether you should regulate industrial relations. It does give you some very powerful principles and certainly some, some guide rails. There are things you absolutely cannot do as a Christian. You know, you cannot hate people. You cannot hate people on the basis of race. You cannot kill people who are innocent uh, people and so on. That's why Christianity has such a lot to say about the life issues. But um, in general, it doesn't tell you, you know, should you increase public spending by 1%. But for ScoMo, uh, his Christianity, I've got no doubt, is absolutely at the centre of his life. It has been all of his life. Uh, mm. It turns out that he and I were both at a Billy Graham crusade in uh in 1979, uh, unbeknownst wow. to each other, I'm about 15 years older than him, so uh, so I was a young adult and he was a kid. Um, wow! And I think the occasional attacks on Scomo for his religion are ridiculous, but I don't think they cut much much mustard with Australians. I think Australians are fair-minded, sensible people. They don't like hypocrisy, but they they are very um, relaxed with Christian belief. On the international stage, of course, uh, Scott Morrison's religion is a great benefit. I mean, the South Pacific is full of other evangelical and Pentecostal Christian leaders. Yeah. And as I say, when he's in Asia, he's the fact that he is a believer. I mean, nothing is weirder in Asia than trying to tell people you have no religion or something. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, for the last book, I interviewed the Coptic Pope Tawadros and I asked him if he'd ever been tempted by atheism. And he spoke quite good English. And he couldn't understand my question. And I had to repeat it half a dozen times. And he finally got one of his helpers to put it to him in Arabic or Coptic or whatever language he was speaking. And uh, then he looked at me. And for the first time, I could see in his eyes this look. Gee, they're really weird people, these Australians, aren't they? Really so... Dealing in most of the world's stage, the fact that Scott Morrison is an identifiable believer makes him a more familiar character uh, in, in Asia, in the Middle East, in, in the South Pacific. Uh, they, they can understand that. He's less eccentric than, um, than most Australians. But I think he's a very sincere Christian. It's not up to me to judge his soul or anything. But I think he's a very <laughs> sincere Christian and he deals yeah. with it uh, in a very good way, which is a straightforward way. You're right. It's it's a good Aussie way, isn't it? Play it with a straight bat. He's done yeah. that really well. I think it's, thank God, it's been a good representation of Christianity. It hasn't added uh, anything weird or odd to it. He's handled it well. He hasn't mixed the two unnecessarily, uh, which I think is really important. And maybe the final thing to talk about, Greg, I, I love the chapter on, uh, I think it was chapter 10 on the Chinese young Chinese uh, lady and uh, and how you talked a little bit about China and Christianity there. You mentioned it a little bit earlier in the podcast, but just a phenomenal uh, 
I suppose, exercise in, in the power of the gospel and Christianity to see a country with the persecution it has, the limitations it has around any religion, let alone Christianity, but to see uh, the work of the gospel just expand into the tens of millions, 100 million plus, whatever the estimates are, is just just phenomenal. So you spend a lot of time in Asia, as I understand, as, as, as your, your journalism is um, uh, uh, focused in that area. Uh, what, what is Christianity like in that part of the world? Well, in China, Christianity is very strong in many parts of Asia, in the Philippines, obviously, in South Korea. South Korea, like China, is one of the few places where affluence has actually helped Christianity. People, as they've become more affluent, have searched for meaning and often found it in Christianity. Christianity generally has a very good reputation in Asia because it's associated with learning and schools and hospitals and so on. Mm-hmm. But the, the story in China is is incredible. So, um, <clears throat> as I say, there were maybe three or four million Christians when the communists took power in 1949. The estimates now, and I explain this in the book, it's very hard to estimate how many Christians there are in China. An extreme low point estimate would be 60 million. And there's a credible estimate up to about 120 or 130 million. So it's probably somewhere between that 60 to 130 million. The organization Open Doors, which um, helps persecuted Christians, estimates pretty intelligently that it's about 100 million. Now, in that whole time since 1949, Christianity has been oppressed and persecuted, sometimes at different levels of intensity was very savage at times in the Cultural Revolution. The um, priests and nuns were kept in cages in cathedrals for the public to come and mock. Uh, I've interviewed Chinese Christians um, uh, who have spent decades in jail uh, because of their Christianity. There are pastors now uh, in jail, Christian leaders. The great expansion of Christianity in China has been predominantly a a house church movement, a Protestant um, evangelical movement. Catholics have expanded too, but there's maybe 10 million Catholics. So it's much more a, um, a Bible-based evangelical kind of Christianity. I regard the Chinese Christians as magnificent, really. And they strike me, if without being too uh, twee or overblown about it, they strike me as very similar to the first Christians living in Roman times. They don't, they don't have a political agenda. They're not trying to overthrow the Communist Party. Uh, they don't have a um, they don't have a death wish. They're not seeking martyrdom. They're not seeking controversy. They would just like to live uh, a, a decent life as Christians, to bring up their kids as Christians, to share their belief with other people, and to be faithful to Christianity. Now the persecution has waxed and waned. It's got much worse again in recent years in China. Churches have been forced to close. Crosses have been torn down from churches. Christians are under intense surveillance all the time in those churches which are allowed to remain. You know, uh, there are cameras set up to see who goes in and who comes out. They're forced to acknowledge Xi Jinping, the Communist Party boss, as the head of the church, which is absurd. They're forced to acknowledge the authority of the Communist Party. Um, A lot of people now meet in households to pray but it makes evangelization very difficult. It's hard for them to have Bible study groups or youth groups or anything like that. And yet, and yet they prosper and yet they flower. I mean, I agree in the West, the culture has turned against us, but we should never really have a boo-hoo, woe is me kind of attitude when we see what Christians 
really live through for the faith. You know, the persecution that they suffer in the Middle East and in Africa and in parts of Asia. But the Chinese Christians um, are, uh, they spread the gospel person to person. They're very, very faithful. They're very brave. The woman I interviewed says, you know, persecution is not too bad now. You only get taken to the police station for a few hours at a time. As if being detained at the police station because you attend Christian worship, you should be grateful that you're only detained for a few hours at a time or something like this. Um, it's impossible to predict their future. Of course, more Christians there are in China, this will ultimately have social and political consequences. And that's one reason I think the Communist Party hates Christianity so much. It does dislike all religion, but it particularly hates Christianity, in my view, because it sees Christianity as um, an alternative plausibility structure, an alternative explanation of reality. And the Communist Party itself is a kind of quasi-religious organisation. It tries to explain the whole human experience and to give, uh, it wants Chinese lives to find purpose within the framework of the Communist Party, you know, completing the revolution, advancing mm. the nation, advancing the party. It's very religious. Mm. Yeah. And then along comes this radical. So again, it's a lot like Christianity in early Rome saying, well, actually, we've got no problem with the emperor, but the real reality is Jesus is your savior and you are an mm. immortal person worthy of respect, made in the image and likeness of God. And in time, the empire finds that very, very uh, disturbing. And the Chinese Communist Party finds Christianity very, very disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just filled with admiration for Chinese Christians. I wish we could do more to help them. I wish we yeah. could do more to celebrate them. And I had to speak to these people on secure phone lines in a very careful way. Um, wow. And the people who organized it assured me it's safe. I don't put their real names in the book. And... Um, so that they themselves and the people who organise the conversations were very, very comfortable that these phone lines were safe. But, you know, I was a correspondent in China way back in 1985. And one of the greatest limitations I felt was that the more interesting the thing that the person told me, the more careful I was about writing it because there was mm. just danger of getting the person into trouble uh, mm. because they spoke to you. And yet many brave souls wanted to speak their truth uh, at the same time. It's one of the great ethical dilemmas of journalism. When you're interviewing a brave person who is going to get into trouble because of what they're saying to you, how much mm. do you leave that decision entirely to them and how much responsibility do you take yourself uh, for, wow. their own, for their own future welfare? That's oh, fascinating, Greg. It's, fasc it's very inspiring to hear stories of, you know, you almost have to call the real Christians <laughs> living under real persecution, uh, following the gospel when it costs you so much more than it costs us here in the West. It's almost embarrassing uh, how much more we should be doing with the opportunities we have, the freedom we have. Uh, it's great. I love the fact that you put a couple of chapters in there that dealt with uh, China and places like that that are very different from here. I think Aussies need to hear, I think Aussie Christians need to hear a lot of perspective because we get, I suppose, like anyone, you get caught in your own subjectivity in your own context in your own day-to-day -day, in your own media your own political world and it's just great to hear stories like that and i think just that the way that you emphasize again even christianity exploding uh, across the earth uh africa asia uh is fascinating i think people need to understand more and more that we are 
a minority in the global community, the way that secularism uh, is taking over here. And uh, God is at work. He's doing a lot. Uh, and uh, we need to do our piece down here, down under. So really appreciate you being with me for the podcast. Greg has been really rich and uh, full of really interesting insights for both Christians and non-Christians. We have both listened to the podcast, so uh, I'm sure it will be something to think about for those who don't believe and for believers. I'm sure it will really encourage uh, their faith uh, more and more. So appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much, Caleb. It's been tremendous fun and a great pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I'm very grateful for the conversation. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, mate. I trust you were impacted by that Leadership Lessons podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast. Please comment down below and please review the podcast and share it with a friend. Doing this inspires us and helps others to find the podcast. See you next time.